A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. All engine running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, Chris Smith, and also with Eva Higginbotham. This week, why we might be destined to succumb to the worst cold ever this winter, signs that air pollution causes millions of premature births each year, and scientists peer into the past and read previously hidden parts of Marie Antoinette's love letters. Plus, as the UK struggles with a lack of fuel in petrol stations and fresh food shortages in the supermarket, we're looking at the science of supply chains and asking, what else are we at risk of running out of? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Now, up first this week, as COVID thankfully retreats, Will it be replaced by an epidemic of coughs, colds and flu viruses? Well, it's already happening, says Ron Eccles, who spent over three decades running the Common Cold Centre at the University of Cardiff. I caught up with him to find out a bit more about the Common Cold and whether, in his view, we are all destined to succumb this winter to what some are dubbing the worst cold ever. And if so, why? Common cold is one of the most complicated diseases because it's caused by over a hundred different types of viruses. The respiratory viruses, as they are called, because they enter the respiratory tract through the nose, are changing all of the time. And we don't have a single vaccine against any of the common cold viruses. And that means that you don't have long-term immunity then? You have immunity perhaps for a few months, but the uh, immunity doesn't protect you against variations of the virus. The rhinovirus changes its coat so rapidly that we can't really develop immunity to it. There are over 100 different types of rhinoviruses in circulation at present. And is it possible to catch more than one of them at once? You can. And certainly now that we have such good techniques to identify the viruses, we now know that it's not uncommon to be infected with two viruses, sometimes even three at the same time. People are saying we're destined to suffer our worst cold ever this winter. Is that hyperbole or do you think that there is some risk of that happening? I think it's already happening, Chris. During the pandemic, we suppressed COVID, but we also suppressed all those common cold viruses that are transmitted in the same way as COVID. And now we've released from lockdown, we're getting an epidemic of common cold viruses. Wherever you look around you, there are relatives and friends and media saying the epidemic of colds are upon us. There is a particularly nasty common cold virus that is circulating at the moment that tends to cause a lot of cough and chest infection and can have a serious effect on babies and the elderly. 
Why should the fact that we've kept these germs at bay for the last 18 months, owing to our response to the COVID pandemic, mean that they're coming back with more abandon now? Normally, we would have these common cold viruses circulating all of the time. They're much more common in winter because our noses are colder in winter and they like a cold environment. But we've suppressed them. And it means that amongst the community, nobody has any resistance to these viruses. No one has been exposed to them. And they are spreading very rapidly throughout the community. From what you're saying then, in an average year, we catch a cold or whatever, but we've got a sort of baseline level of immunity or resistance then to colds. And because we haven't caught any for the last 18 months, as a result, we've lost some of that immunity. And that's enabling these viruses that cause colds to become more common again. That's right, Chris. No one has got any immunity to these common cold viruses. So, you know, they've got 100 percent Uh, of the population that they can attack. And in normal circumstances, you know, perhaps 20, 25% of the population would have had colds fairly recently. That is why they're spreading so rapidly. Is there any evidence that these colds actually compete with each other? And could they provide some competition for coronavirus infections? So if you catch the common cold, because there was some suggestion last year that perhaps the common cold might reduce the risk of COVID because your body's busy fighting off the common cold and puts itself into a state where it's, it's harder for COVID to gain a toehold. That's correct. We know that there's been a big surge of rhinoviruses when lockdown has been reduced And the rhinoviruses have crowded out some of the COVID viruses. As you say, our immune system is alert, it's activated, and it makes it more difficult for the COVID viruses to get in. I guess what's interesting is that despite our efforts to suppress coronavirus, these colds, although their numbers went down, they didn't disappear. And people have repeatedly come to me during the lockdowns and said, I've taken enormous steps and been very, very diligent about hygiene and everything to stop myself catching COVID. I've still managed to catch colds. Well, the colds are, have been in this game a lot longer than COVID. We've probably been interacting with the common cold viruses for millions of years. And therefore, they've got lots of tricks to get past our immune system. Uh, COVID will eventually evolve into what I would expect would be like a common cold virus. These new variants are more infectious than the earlier variants. And common cold is worldwide all of the time. And therefore, it's almost impossible to eliminate the common cold viruses. It's like Benjamin Franklin said, life certainties, death and taxes, we basically can't get rid of them. Interesting what he said, though, isn't it? The current epidemic of common colds might ironically be what is holding COVID numbers in check as we go into winter. Wouldn't that be an irony? Ron Eccles there. And we'll also hear later about combining COVID boosters with seasonal flu jabs. How well does it work and is it safe? That's coming up. But first, around this time last year, researchers in London reported that they had found particulate matter from air pollution in the placentas of women giving birth in the capital. They concluded that what pregnant women breathe in can sometimes end up in their developing baby, but they didn't look at the impact on the children in that study. 
But now, University of California San Francisco epidemiologist Rakesh Ghosh has taken things a step further and married up data from exposure to small particles of airborne pollution, termed PM2.5, with the risk of a baby being born either too early or weighing less than it should. He told Cameron Voisey what he found. So the main finding of this study is that there are almost 6 million preterm babies and 2.8 million underweight babies born every year that are due to PM2.5 exposure during pregnancy. These are very small particles, less than 2.5 micrometers, that can travel deep into the lungs and pass into the bloodstream. And how is it that these particles affect babies? So there could be three possible ways that we can think of. One, by affecting the development of the placenta and the umbilical cord. The second could be these particles induce some kind of inflammation, inflammation of the membranes, and cause the baby to be born early. And the third possible pathway could be by causing oxidative damage to the DNA. And what are the problems associated with preterm births? Preterm birth is the most important cause of neonatal mortality, which is death in the first four weeks after birth. And those who go on to survive, it is often observed that these preterm babies develop long-term disability because their body, including the brain, was not fully mature when they were born. So what are the main sources of this particular matter? What leads to this pollution being in the air? In many of the countries, the main source, particularly the high-income countries, is traffic and industrial sources, for example, coal-fired power plants. In other countries, such as sub-Saharan Africa and the Indian subcontinent, a major source of PM2.5 is household air pollution. So in many of these places, wood, dung, even coal are used, used as fuel for cooking. And my results show that huge amount of these 6 million that I was talking about is happening in these parts of the world where pollution levels are very high. So how did you actually carry out this study? What data did you use? So first, I started with compiling the evidence from the studies that have been conducted so far. And I primarily did this to examine critically whether the relationship between PM2.5 exposure and the adverse outcomes like preterm birth and low birth weight is causal. And once I was convinced that this association is causal, then I estimated, along with the team, the magnitude of the risk at different levels of exposure. So looking forward, where would you say we go from here? Outdoor air pollution, as we all know, is ubiquitous. It has to be acted upon by different authorities. For countries where indoor air pollution is a problem, I think a message should be part of the prenatal care that do whatever you can to minimize exposure to indoor air pollution or household air pollution. It is high time to realize that air pollution is not just about premature deaths, but it is harming the babies 
and our future generations even before they are born. An important message there. Rakesh Ghosh, and that study has just been published in PLOS Medicine. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Meanwhile, coming up here on The Naked Scientists, amidst the petrol panic buying, we put supply chains under scrutiny. Also, after two centuries, Marie Antoinette's love letters to her Swedish amour surrender their secrets. First, though, a booster programme for the COVID-19 vaccine has been implemented here in the UK. This is what Health Secretary Sajid Javid had to say on the 14th of September. There's evidence that the protection offered by COVID-19 vaccine reduces over time, particularly older people who are at greater risk. This morning, we published the JCVI's advice on a booster programme. They recommended that people who were vaccinated in phase one, that is priority groups one to nine, should be offered a booster vaccine. That this vaccine should be offered no earlier than six months after the completion of the primary vaccine course, and the NHS is preparing to offer booster doses from next week. And that basically applies to any adult who's over 50 in the UK with a priority given to people who are most infirm in care homes, people who are looking after people who are infirm in care homes, people who live with particularly vulnerable people, people who are uh, priority caregivers in the NHS, for example. But as we were hearing earlier on in the programme, doctors are predicting a worse than usual flu season this year. So we are being urged to grab a jab for flu alongside the COVID boosters. And the current guidance is that this can safely be given alongside a COVID jab. Rajeka Lazarus is at Bristol University. She's part of the Comflu cov study that's actually been testing the grounds for this, and they've just announced their results. Rajeka, presumably the rationale behind doing this is that we want to protect people against COVID. We also want to protect them against the flu. People who are at risk from severe flu infection are also at risk from COVID, aren't they? So I suppose it makes sense to, while you've got them there in front of you, protect them against both things at the same time. That's right. And by giving the vaccines together, then you can prevent any delays providing protection against one infection or the other. And also, hopefully, it will make it easier for people to get both vaccines just by having one appointment. And also, it makes it easier, hopefully, for the for healthcare services, reducing the number of appointments they need to deliver. Indeed, because the JCVI, our Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, have said that this should be done where it is clinically expedient to do so. But obviously people shouldn't wait to get both vaccines. If they can have one sooner, they should just go and get that one a bit sooner, shouldn't they? But how did you actually do your study? Because critically, one wants to know if we are going to give two vaccines at the same time that both are going to work equivalently well. That's right. And I think it's important to say that Given two vaccines at the same time is very common. People will get a pneumonia vaccine or a shingles vaccine alongside their flu vaccine. But when there's a new combination, then it does need to be tested. So what we did was we invited volunteers who were due to have their second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine and then randomised them to have that second dose alongside a flu vaccine or a placebo, which was just 
it's an assault solution and then compared the responses of those volunteers to the how they reacted to the vaccine and also the immune response in blood tests that we took. Let's start with the the first of the points you make about the the reaction. This is side effect profile, I presume, sore arm, feeling a bit achy and tired. What happened there? Did people get a double whammy with the side effects if they had both at the same time or were they okay? So we know that with the COVID-19 vaccines, depending on which one you had and whether it's the first, second dose, then you can get kind of the more general flu-like symptoms with them. And those are the symptoms that we were most interested in and to see whether having the flu would increase the number of people who got those symptoms. And it, it varied a little bit, but Overall, we found that there wasn't a significant increase when you have them both together compared to having the COVID-19 vaccine alone. And, and where there was an increase, most of those side effects were still mild or moderate. And perhaps most critically, when you followed up and tested people's blood for evidence of immunity against both flu and coronavirus, was there any difference in giving the vaccines individually or when they were administered together? So that's a really important question. And overall, there wasn't a difference when you gave the vaccines together compared to when you gave the COVID-19 vaccine alone, which means that they, the protection that you get from both those vaccines it remains intact. How long after the vaccines were administered did you look, though? Because one of the other key questions here is how long are people going to be protected for? Yeah, that's right. So we checked after three weeks after people have had the vaccination because we're just looking at how people respond in terms of their antibody levels in the blood. And I suppose, I mean, what's really important in terms of how long it lasts is really kind of how long people stop getting disease for how well the vaccine works. And that's not something that we tested in our in our study. And at, at this time, we don't know what level of antibody or immune response you need to provide protection from COVID. Um, so that's the kind of question that we need to answer by ongoing studies looking at what happens in the real world. And just briefly to finish, do you think this is something that we're likely to see for years ahead, giving boosters, not just for flu, as we're pretty accustomed to doing, but for COVID as well? Or do you think this might be the last year we have to do this? Well, I'm not sure if anyone knows the answer to that. Um, it may be something that we do for the next one or two years, and maybe longer. Maybe it'll be incorporated into something like the flu vaccine if we do need to keep giving it for a longer time. But I think time will tell whether it be, just becomes um, more like a, a cold virus or, or whether we still need to keep vaccinating. Time will definitely tell, as you say. Thanks very much. That's Rajeka Lazarus from the University of Bristol. To space now. We know that going into space changes people and not just in a perspective shifting the earth is so small kind of way. The lack of gravity in space affects bone density and it makes people literally taller. It also affects a host of organs from your heart to your eyes. However, most of the data on what happens to the body in microgravity comes from studying men as the majority of astronauts have been male. Now, a new experiment has been launched by the European Space Agency, ESA, to look at how female bodies are affected. I spoke with ESA scientist Angelique van Ombergeur. We have started a dry immersion study with 20 females. And the dry immersion is a sort of model in which we can simulate weightlessness or microgravity, which allows us to do some research that could help us to prepare human spaceflight. And in essence, the idea is that you put people in, let's say, a bathtub, if you want to imagine it like that, and you get them there for five days long. 
the fact that it's a dry immersion study means that in essence, their skin is not in contact with the water. So in essence, they stay dry, but they are immersed in the water for five days long. And this induces changes that are very similar to what we see in astronauts. And that can help us to better prepare human spaceflight and to get a better understanding of these changes. Five days in a bathtub just does not sound very comfortable. So how did you go about recruiting people for this study? It's not easy to find people to do it, especially now because we're only targeting female subjects. So they can read the book, they can be on the laptop, uh, but of course they, at all cases, need to be in the bathtub. They also can only use a pillow to support their head uh, when they're eating. But for anything else, they're just lying. And of course they can, they can hold something up, but yeah, it's not going to be the most comfortable thing, let's say. So does the weightlessness bit come from the fact that they're in water, so they're kind of being held up by water? Is that how it's similar? Yes, exactly. So you have the immersion in the water, which creates something that we call supportlessness, because normally when you're sitting on a chair, for example, you're always supported in, in one way or the other. You, either it's your, your feet on the floor or it's your, let's say, your bum on a chair or when you're lying in a bed, it's your back. So there's always something supported. And of course, in weightlessness, you do not have that unless you really touch something. The idea of having somebody in the water basically mimics that in a certain way. And it, we know that it also induces similar changes to what we see in astronauts. And what makes you want to focus on female bodies in this experiment? The dry immersion model has already been used mostly in Russia and also in France, but the subjects that they have included were always male subjects. So there is already quite some knowledge on how dry immersion induces bodily changes and physiological changes, but there is no data available on, on female subjects. So that's why we wanted to include 20 female subjects to, let's say, address some of the, the knowledge gaps that we still have and to get a better understanding potentially on how males and females differ in these changes that we see. And what changes do you see? What do you expect to happen to the body? And why might it be different in a female body than a male body? We know that there's a lot of differences between males and females. Sometimes these differences are quite small. Sometimes these differences are bigger. So, so that really depends. And we know also that in general, there are a lot of differences between individual people, let's say. So if you have person A and person B, there's going to be differences between them, even though they might be, let's say, considered both in a normal range. Um, so we know that, for example, we have loss of bone density, we have loss of uh, muscle mass, the immune system is challenged, we can have vision changes. And from the data that we have from astronauts already, we know, for example, that the female astronaut seems to seem to be less susceptible to vision changes, just to, to name one example. Now, we need to be sure that this is indeed the case. And if so, then we want to understand better why they might be more protected. It might be, for example, hormonal. It might be cardiovascular changes. It might, there, there might be something different and we need to investigate it. Or it might also be that we do not see it in females yet just because we don't have enough female astronauts to test. So, so this is an important distinction, of course, and we can only address that if we have sufficient female subjects to actually do the testing on. And by this dry immersion study and some other ground-based studies that we do, we really hope to, let's say, address that knowledge gap. There is really a broad scope. And what we, of course, want to do is find the countermeasures that are best in mitigating some of the unwanted effects of spaceflight. And potentially, we will come to a situation where this might be individualized to a certain individual and, and to a specific astronaut. 
Amazing stuff. That was Angelique van Ombergier from the European Space Agency, and we'll definitely look forward to hearing those results. I quite like a tub, but there's no way I could stand soaking in one for five days. I mean, that sounds horrendous. Anyway, let's step back now into the past and to Paris in the late 1700s. Now, this was the time when the French queen, Marie Antoinette, was under house arrest during the French Revolution. And during that time, she corresponded prolifically with the Swedish Count Axel von Fersen, with whom she was alleged to be intimately involved. Now, he kept many of her letters she wrote him, which now sit in the French National Archives. But, ever the tease, someone scribbled out key parts of the text, possibly the bits that might have got him or her into a lot of trouble. Now, though, researchers have used an X-ray technique to see through those redactions by subtracting the differing signals of the ink used for the scribbling out from the one Marie Antoinette wrote with. Anne Michelin from Sorbonne University took Harry Lewis through the story. This correspondence uh, was secret correspondence between uh, Marie Antoinette and Axel Fersen in 1790. One and 92, it's the end of the life of the Queen. She's in jail. So we are in the middle of the revolution and it's not really good for the royal family in France. She realised the situation. She, she sees that it's not a good time for her. And so she writes to Axel de Fersen, which is a very close friend, and she writes about the political situation, but also on their feelings. And uh, this correspondence is special because some parts of uh, this is uh, redacted, it's very black and you can't see anything. For me, <laughs> at least, it's impossible to read the text. And so it was something that the curator from the National Archives that asked us if we can read the text. And do you have any of those words available would you be able to read a short part where something's been reducted uh, in french yeah I, I guess it will have to be won't it non pas sans vous dire mon cher et bien tendre ami que je vous aime à la folie et que jamais jamais je ne peux être un moment sans vous adorer so it's something like my dear friend i love you madly and i can't be a moment without adoring you something like that not exactly but something like that so the big question there is how do you see underneath the reductions? How do you know what the letters are? It's all uh, iron gall ink. Iron gall ink are inks that contain sulfate, iron sulfate, uh, but also other metallic elements like copper, like zinc. And so there is some slight difference between the different inks. And we use uh, techniques X-ray reference spectroscopy uh, that analyze the composition of the ink. So just uh, send the X-ray on the paper and we record the spectrum in each pixel. So in each pixel of the letters, we record a spectrum. And then when you transfer that X-ray to the screen and you put that into a digital format, through looking at each pixel, you can see where the spectrum changes and the different elements are present. So you can build up a visual picture like that. Yeah, yeah, like that. And we have some parts where we have only uh, the writing ink, the original ink, and some parts where we are sure there is only the reduction ink. So it's like that we can see 
if we have the same composition or if we have something really different. Fascinating stuff. And Michelin on the work she's just published in Science Advances. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. Now, we're going to devote the rest of the program to something that's been inspired by recent events here in the UK. How long have you been waiting? all have about a week's supply of CO2, um, so it's a massive problem. Stock is becoming a bit of an issue for us, being, you know, guaranteed that we're going to be able to get it for Christmas. In some shops, the shelves are empty. It's a problem now. It's a problem looking ahead. Worrying stuff. And that's right, with food, fuel and even CO2 shortages occurring across the UK, we're learning in real time that the supply chains involved in getting the stuff we want where we want it can be complex and delicate. In the past, many places subscribed to what's called a just-in-case model, with retailers stockpiling supplies locally to safeguard against running out. In recent years, that's been replaced with a just-in-time approach instead, where things turn up at the right place and at the right time, meaning they can be fresher, you don't need to waste space on storing them, and this keeps down prices and it keeps up the quality. But it does mean there is a risk of things running out if anything upsets the delicate balance of supply and demand. And that's what we're going to be looking at this week, the science of supply chains and some of the other things we're in danger of running short on. First up, a surprising example, and that is, believe it or not, sand. Throughout human history, humble grains of sand have played a crucial role in how we've lived. But not all sands are suitable for our purposes, and this is putting considerable pressure on environments in some parts of the world. We need better sand logistics, otherwise what's powered our past could be our future undoing, as Eva has been learning. Whether digging into it with our toes or hoovering it up in the car after a day at the beach, we all have a relationship with sand. And actually, we are all far more dependent on those tiny grains than you might have thought. We've used sand, actually, since the dawn of civilization, and essentially it satisfies our basic needs because, essentially, we build homes with it. So it's absolutely a foundation of civilization. That's Ian Selby from the University of Plymouth, who spends his time thinking about sand. From what we do with it... Once we blend it with a a mud or a, a cement... To what it's made of... Sand is often dominated by quartz because it's such a hard mineral. To how it's created. Sand is essentially a natural product, so it's created by geological processes. Rocks are formed of minerals... The rocks then, across time, are subject to all sorts of processes, whether that's wind, rain, snow, ice, essentially climate-driven processes, it could be hot, cold, that basically break down those rocks after their formation and they break them down into their component parts. And it, it can take a very, very long time, so we can talk about millions of years, tens of billions of years, even hundreds of millions of years, to break down the rock into these small particles which we call sand. 
So sand is an absolutely integral part of modern life. Think of cement roads and concrete buildings and plaster and glass and even paint. But the thing is, although pictures of the Sahara Desert might make you think we have a never-ending supply... The big one that people, I guess, are starting with is, do we have enough sand? That's Louise Gallagher from UNEP Grid Geneva. She's been tracking how sand is used and raising the alarm about a potential future where there is a scarcity of the right kind of sand in the right places. Because actually, not all sand is created equal. People really like river sand because it's a certain type of shape, it's coarse, it's angular, it's really, you know, grips well together when you when you want to use it to make things like concrete. Oh, and it has no salt in it. That's very important. And you don't have to wash it. Nature has done all the work for you in grading and sorting and cleaning that sand. As the population continues to grow, and as we build more infrastructure, more sand is needed, particularly in the global south. To ensure that we, globally, have the resources to meet this demand means that we need to keep track of how much sand we actually need, both now and projected into the future. I asked Louise if we know how much sand we use each year, and... The best estimate that's out there right now is 50 billion tonnes of sand per year, which is just massive. That's a lot of sand. And the thing is, the world actually has a lot of sand, but we need to be careful with how we use it. For example... Although very plentiful, the round grains of Sahara sand have little use in construction. And we currently sometimes use high-quality sand where low-quality sand would do, partly thanks to the fact that historically, sand has just been seen as a never-ending resource, as opposed to a vital component of life that took, in some cases, hundreds of millions of years to be created. I guess if you live in an area which hasn't been impacted by sand mining, it seems like there's loads and it's not a problem. If you lived in an area where you've seen sand been taken out of your local rivers or off your local beaches, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of sand left, actually. Your water availability can become a problem in some rivers. You can impact upon your land, so your rivers start to erode um, more quickly. So you can have banks of the rivers collapsing, including then bringing in buildings that are built on the banks of those rivers. So that's like the direct impacts on the site level. And then finally, if we have overall much less sand entering into the marine environment and making its way to the coast, making its way naturally to beaches so you can have increased coastal erosion with um you know when the big storms come you have much worse effects uh, much worse impacts on land you have loss of property loss of life so if we don't manage sand properly at that kind of big systems level you not only maybe don't have the right type of sand uh, for building what you need when you need it you might also on top of that create a ton of problems so it's clear that we need to pay closer attention to those tiny grains and this starts with more sensitive resource mapping and tracking of sand use globally From a technical standpoint, there are sand substitutes in the works for some uses. And Louise and others are hopeful that we'll move forwards with making our own sand by crushing up waste rock produced by mining. Importantly, though... It's going to take a big change in how we think about building, how we think about the material, how we train our engineers, how we design building projects. It's going to be a big cultural shift The technical challenge is just going to be one challenge. Um, The social and cultural and political aspects also are going to have to really be thought about very deeply as well. So next time you're at the beach or walking along a river or looking up at a new building, it's worth thinking about the history of the grains involved in creating the scenes that we know and love. 
and how we might best protect them. Louise Gallagher there and before her, Ian Selby. Well, now it's the turn of the world's favourite fruit to go under the microscope, and that is the banana. But because of their popularity, at least in part, they are at risk from a plant pandemic. Not just us humans that are suffering, bananas are too. And that could see supplies drying up in the future. Fernando Garcia Bastidas is a banana scientist. What a brilliant title. He's a key gene. Uh, what actually is threatening bananas, Fernando? It's uh, indeed an ongoing banana pandemic that has the potential to wipe out banana plantations. It is rapidly spreading, and this situation really threatens global banana production, mostly because uh, all the bananas in the market are identical, meaning that all of them are susceptible to this disease. This already happened in the past, and with another race of this disease and a different cultivar, so we know that it's something serious. What is the cause of the banana plants dying? Yes, the pathogen is a fungus, which is called Fusarium, and caused the disease known as Panama disease. It's caused by a soil-borne fungus, so that means that it lives in the soil. This fungus uh, interacts with the plant and essentially kills banana plants. This fungus also produces lots of spores that are easily to spread. So, for example, if you go to a farm in, in the Philippines, for example, and you use the same shoes in a farm in Colombia, you are bringing the pathogen with you. Goodness. And how far afield is the pandemic now? Where is affected? For more than 30 years, this uh, pandemic was restricted to Southeast Asia. So it was present only in the Philippines, in Malaysia, Taiwan, Indonesia. But then in 2012, we found it for the first time outside of this area in Jordan. And lately, it was described by other scientists, also in Oman, in Mozambique. We discovered it in Pakistan, in Lebanon, then in Israel, Turkey, Myanmar, and, and like that. It's been spreading very fast. Currently, there are more than 20 countries with the pathogen. And the most uh, striking thing is that it's present almost in every continent. In 2019, for example, I discovered it for the first time in Colombia. And that's really bad news because if you go to the supermarket, for example, and you check the stickers of the bananas, most bananas come from Latin America. And this disease has the potential to destroy all banana plantations. Recently, it was also discovered in Peru. You mentioned that the reason bananas are susceptible to this is because they are all genetically identical because they're all effectively clones. A bit like the Irish potato famine was because potatoes are all genetically identical. Along comes something that it can attack one plant so it can attack every plant because they're identical. How are you trying to tackle the problem? Exactly. There are only a few uh, options to, to control this disease because so far not even chemical controls can kill this pathogen because it's in the soil, and in the soil is very difficult to, to tackle. So the most logical way to, to tackle this problem is to generate a new banana. So essentially, there are two ways to generate a new banana, either by traditional breeding, which is using the pollen of one plant and pollinate other banana plants, or transgenics, which is taking the DNA of another plant, hopefully another banana, and introduce it into a, an edible banana. Bananas only very infrequently have plant flowers, don't they? So they're very, very hard to, to grow via the pollen root. So the transgenic sort of moving genes seems to be more promising. Is that what you're doing? 
No, actually, I'm doing traditional breathing. I'm using the pollen because you know it's more complex with transgenics in terms of the acceptance of the of the customers. So I'm using traditional breathing, and of course, the edible bananas, the bananas that we have in the supermarkets, are very difficult to improve. But what we are doing is to go to the ancestors of the bananas, and those ones are easy to cross, to mix, and to generate new bananas. And what do they taste like? Are they any good? Yeah. I, they, they taste uh, fantastic. There are even different kind of flavors. We have bananas that taste like apples, for example, or that are sweeter <laughs> or, or, or more uh, less sweet. So the diversity of bananas is, is huge. If you go to the center of origin of the bananas in Southeast Asia, there are more than 1,000 different cultivars, but they don't look as pretty as the Cavendish, the one that we have in the supermarket. So what I'm doing now is trying to combine different types of bananas so far, we identified the ones that are resistant to that specific disease, but unfortunately, they are not ready because they are not pretty. They are not big enough. The skin is too thin. They don't ripen at the right moment. So we need to continue with breeding, and that takes a lot of time. But at the same time, you are making headway against breeding a resistant banana, even if it does confuse and bamboozle your senses because it tastes like an apple. Thank you very much, Fernando. I'm looking forward to tasting your banana one of these days. That's Fernando Garcia Bastidas. This week here on The Naked Scientist, though, we are looking at some of our favourite resources that are at risk regressively. We've just heard about the banana pandemic, and thankfully Fernando's potentially got one solution in the pipeline to help us out with that. We've also heard why sand is getting surprisingly scarce. And later on, we're going to look at the rare earth elements that you need to keep your smartphone's brilliant colours on display. Very important, that. But first, to another important resource that is normally invisible, unless it is filling a balloon, that is. That's right, it's helium. But squeaky voices and party balloons aside, helium is actually a crucial part of modern life. From running MRI machines to making the semiconductor chips in your smartphone, helium is vital. Which is why scientists get a bit nervous about the fact that its supply can fluctuate. And one day, we could quite literally run out. Here with us is one such scientist, Sophia Hayes, from Washington University in St. Louis. So, Sophia... Tell me, what is it about helium that makes it so useful? Oh, you know, there are so many properties of helium that make it a very special element. Of course, many of us know that it's lighter than air. It can lift objects, and that's why we have helium balloons and weather balloons and the like. But it's also unreactive. And what that means to those of us who are chemists is it doesn't change the composition of things when it touches another atom or molecule. If you think about oxygen around us, that turns iron into rust or steel into rust. What happens uh, with helium is it just doesn't react with anything else. But then the really important property is that it's the coldest substance that one can buy on Earth. And we scientists use that. And like you said, it's used in MRI machines. So it doesn't like making friends with other molecules. And it's also very cold. Where do we actually get it from? Helium comes along when we mine natural gas and bring it up from underneath the earth. So there's a bit of helium that's stuck there, fortunately for us. And so when we bring up that natural gas, we can separate the helium from that other methane. And how much helium is down there, sort of as a percentage with the methane that we're bringing up? You know, in a good source, it's only about a percent, maybe sometimes as high as 5%. But many, many natural gas sources have much less. And is that why the supply can go up and down? 
Ah, yeah, that is a really complicated question. And I'm so glad you said a just-in-case model at the start of the program versus just-in-time. Helium has a very hard time being stored. And so it comes up with this natural gas mining. But occasionally there are geopolitical situations with Qatar or Algeria, and that will shut down an entire source. The U.S. source has a large inventory because we have a rock formation where we store it. And so we have a unique capability here, but even occasionally we have shutdowns for maintenance. So it just, the whole market goes out of, out of order when one of these supply sources goes down. And so what happens when we have a low supply to all of those MRI machines? Yeah, the MRI machines are less at risk because many of them are in a closed cycle, kind of like the radiator on your car. But other kinds of applications, the semiconductor industry, and even those of us who don't have those closed cycle systems, then they're all at risk. So semiconductor lines have to be shut down. And in the case of those MRI-like magnets, that puts them at risk because they need to be maintained in that cold state for their entire lifetime. So it puts them at risk because they might warm up. And do we have any replacements for helium when there is a low supply? Yeah, sadly, there is nothing like it. It is a special substance, again, with no other alternative that we can find. And so while we might come up with an alternative for one application or another, there's really nothing like it. It's quite special. And if we get it from underground, do we know sort of how much is left underground? Will more continue to be created? Where does it come from? Yeah, it comes from the decay of elements such as uranium and thorium. And so we have some estimates of how much uranium is on the planet. But uh, what that means is that we're making helium one atom at a time, and it's a very slow process. You see, you know, the Earth is estimated to be about 4 billion years old. And so luckily, a lot of these crust formations have trapped helium underground, which means it's there for us to pull out. But that four billion years has given us a lot of time to produce that helium uh, one at a time. So estimates say something on the order of a 200-year supply. And that doesn't seem like that long, actually, considering it's so important. Seeing as it's lighter than air, does that mean that the helium we get just goes up into space? Yes, that's exactly right. And that's a problem because it doesn't stay here on Earth. As soon as we've let it go, it's truly gone forever. Does that mean that we could go get some from space if it sort of all ends up there? (laughs) I wish. Wouldn't that be terrific? It would be such a terrific solution. But of course, out in outer space, it's just so dilute. And even though there's helium up there, it would be so hard for us to collect an atom at a time again. So what should we what should we do? Does this mean that it should be the end of helium balloons to preserve them? Yeah, that's also complicated. Let's just say those of us who use a lot of helium, we really ought to recycle it in such closed cycle systems. For example, the semiconductor industry, to the best of my knowledge, doesn't recycle the massive amounts of helium that they use. They are also used for rocket propulsion, and there is not really a good way to recycle that as well. But those of us with MRI and related strong magnetic equipment, they're called superconducting magnets, if all of us began to recycle, it would certainly be a better way to preserve that resource. So I'll keep on admiring helium balloons from afar for now. Thank you very much. That was Sophia Hayes. 
Helium, a precious resource indeed. Well, finally, to another technologically important element, or rather group of elements, and that's the rare earth elements. This is a group of 17 different chemicals. They have special properties that make them very well suited to all sorts of technological applications, whether it's making bright colours appear on your phone screen or fuel cell batteries or even the motors for electric vehicles. And that means that we are increasingly needing a lot of them. But currently, the supplies are dominated by just a few countries, China in particular, and they've often used that monopoly over the market to exert political as well as diplomatic pressure on other nations. So, is there a way around this? Well, with us now is Joseph Cotruvo. He's from Penn State University, and he's working on techniques that might make it a bit easier for us to get hold of these rare earths when we need them. So, Joseph, when we say rare, are they rare because the earth has only a handful of atoms of them, or is it rare that actually they're hard to get hold of in pure form, or both? The rare earths are really not particularly rare. There's more of the most abundant rare earth, an element called cerium, than there is copper in the earth's crust. But the problem is that they're not distributed very evenly. And so the rare earths are rare because they're usually present in rocks in very low amounts. They're mixed with other rare earths, and they're mixed in with many more abundant metals like iron, calcium, and and others. And so as a result, there are very few deposits that are economical to mine those metals. And hence we have the sort of geopolitical issue and supply issues just because of gaining access to where they're actually worth exploiting. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. What are the possible solutions then? Well, so the solution that we have been working on uses biology and or biochemistry, I should say, really. About a decade ago, it was discovered that there are actually bacteria that need some of the rare earths, just like we need metals like iron or calcium or zinc as vitamins, essentially. And so I thought that if we could understand how these bacteria have basically solved the problem of mining rare earths, the same problem that we want to solve, we may be able to to do this more efficiently. And so my lab discovered the first molecule that these bacteria make that binds rare earths very tightly and very specifically. It's a protein molecule, and and you can think of it as a, a person with arms that are flailing about. When the hands on those arms grab hold, of a rare earth, the body curls up into a ball and they can hold on to the elements very tightly. But if the arms grab a metal that is not a rare earth, it tries to curl up, but it can't. And therefore it has to release those metals. And so essentially what we would like to do, if we we can take the protein that's curled up into this ball, and when we want to recover the rare earths from the protein, we can tickle it, so to speak, to get it to release the metals. And then we can go on and use those metals for technologies. Presumably the tickle is a chemical one. You prise the fingers of the arms off of the metal (laughs) chemically to make it surrender what it's grabbed. What, though, I'm intrigued to know are the bacteria. What are they and why have they got this extraordinary function? Yeah, most of the bacteria that use rare earths are are a class of bacteria called methylotrophs. These bacteria are actually all over the place in the environment, in soil, in water. They grow on plants, um, and they're present in more extreme environments too. And they're really special microbes because they can use very simple molecules like methane and methanol, molecules that we cannot use as food. And so what the rare earths are doing in these bacteria 
is they are helping to catalyze a very important chemical reaction, basically how those bacteria eat the methanol that they use as food. And would your plan then be, having discovered how the bacteria are able to grab and sequester these rare earths from very dilute, what will be very dilute Mm -hmm. sources in the environment, you could borrow from that biology and basically copy it. So you'd have a very fine sieve specific for rare earths. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, we could use the bacteria on their own potentially, but biology is a lot slower than chemistry is. The protein on its own, if we can make it, and we can make it on its own, it works very, very quickly. So we're using the molecules on their own. And in practical terms, how would one deploy this? Would you go to, say, a mine site where someone's already moved, I would say heaven and earth, but a lot of earth, and you could take the tailings and basically you know there's going to be tiny amounts of rare earth in there, not worth processing the traditional way, but you could put that through your very fine sieve and therefore you would enrich for the rare earths from from mess we've already made without having to make a new mess. Exactly. Yeah, There are actually many waste sources, such as the ones that you mentioned, where we have huge quantities of material, but very small amounts of rare earths. And so the mine tailings that you mentioned, coal fly ash, the water, the very acidic water that spills out of mines, also electronic waste. All of these are sources where we have a very large amount of material that can be processed, but the current technologies just don't work. And and that's where we can take advantage of, you know, the millennia and millennia of evolution where the bacteria have devised ways of getting out these small quantities of rare earths. It sounds incredibly elegant and congratulations to you for this achievement. But if one tops (laughs) up how much there is in the way of rare earths in these other sorts of sources that we've just been discussing, is there enough potentially recoverable in there to keep the likes of the makers of iPhones and Android phones and the magnets in electric vehicle motors happy? At the moment, I think this isn't the full solution to the problem. Using sources where you're starting with very high concentrations of rare earths will be the best for the next few years. But the demand for rare earths keeps increasing, and we have more and more of these wastes. And I, th- I think you know, it's, it's important to incentivize sustainability. The mining process of rare earths is one of the most environmentally damaging industrial processes on Earth. And so if we recognize some of the hidden environmental costs uh, associated with those methods, then I think once scaled up, biotech methods like GARS uh, could really make a dent in the rare earth problem that exists. Fascinating. Thank you for joining us to tell us about it. That's Joseph Trivo. He's at Penn State University. It goes to show that beyond the fuel and food that we're hearing about on the news, as humans, we're using all sorts of resources all over the world that help make our lives more pleasurable and we need to pay attention to those. And finally, to finish, let's change tack and talk about the immune system for our question of the week. Sally LePage has a solution for listener Rick. Why do we acquire lifelong immunity against some pathogens but not others? A very topical question, as I am suffering from my 500th cold virus. 
Infectious disease researcher John Tregoning has the answer. The simplest answer is that some pathogens change and others don't. Our immune system remembers what we have seen before and stops those pathogens infecting us again. Immune memory recognises molecules made by pathogens, mostly the ones on the outer surface that the pathogen uses to get into our cells. If these molecules change, then our immune system no longer recognises them, allowing the pathogen to infect us. Seems like the immune memory is just as bad at recognising people as me. If I've seen you before but you've now got a new haircut or are wearing a different pair of glasses, you might as well be a complete stranger. Different types of pathogen use different methods to change how they appear to our immune system. Some viruses, like influenza and the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, use a molecule called RNA to store their genetic information. When the virus replicates, it makes copies of that RNA and mistakes occur which lead to changes in the structure of the molecules on the outside of the virus. Some bacteria also change the way they appear. The bacteria coat themselves in sugar to hide from the immune system. Each bacteria can make several different sugars and they can replace the one on their surface with a new one, improving their chance of not being seen. The sneaky things! It's almost like these bacteria don't want to be spotted by our immune systems. The pathogens to which we acquire lifelong immunity are more stable. They don't change their surface proteins so our immune systems can recognise them each time we see them. So the next time you catch a cold, feel sorry for your immune system, which is having the very awkward experience of not recognising someone they've already met. And if the thought of that social anxiety is making you want to just leave everyone behind on Earth and live in space, this next question from Daniel might make you think again. If a crew on a mission to Mars had a death on board and the body was released into space, would that body ever decay? A quite creepy question there that we're looking forward to finding out the answer. So if you know the answer, actually, you should come tell us. You can join the debate on the forum, nakedscientist.com forward slash forum, or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also use that address to send us any new questions that you have been pondering. And that's where we must park it for this week. Thanks very much to Eva who put the programme together and join us next time when we're taking you on a journey through the world of the smallest objects known to man, the particles that make the universe tick, a massive topic involving tiny things. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and from all of us here at The Naked Scientist, thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>